Well, today we, we are going to recognize the sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and we stand with other churches throughout our, our nation to remember the sanctity of human life, which is grounded in creation, that all human life is created by God. It's His idea. It's His purpose and design in creation to bring Himself glory, that all creation belongs to Him. All human life belongs to Him, regardless of age, regardless of ethnicity, of socioeconomic status, regardless of any physical or mental disability, all human life, male and female, is to be honored because all human life is created by God in His own image and is worthy of being treated with honor and dignity and respect. We're going to take time today to consider what God has said in His Word about how precious human life is. And on this Sunday, we call attention specifically to the horrific evil of abortion. Yesterday marked the 49th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision that held that women in the United States have the fundamental and constitutional right to have an abortion. Since that decision has been handed down from our nation's highest court, an estimated 62 million Preborn lives have been taken. A massive amount of life taken, never given a chance to live. You know, you can find statistics on abortion through our government agencies on their website. And the last time that the CDC reported abortion statistics was 2019, and they reported there 629,898 abortions that year from 49 different reporting areas. That was last, that was 2019. Well, to consider in the last 49 years, 62 million babies not being given a chance to be born. And think about that. 49 years, many of those babies would have grown up presumably now to be fathers and mothers themselves, having already reproduced. Think about the enormous taking of life. That number, those 62 million, is, is almost 19% of the current total population of the United States. 19% of our country not given a chance to live. It is, it's hard to imagine the massive amount of life taken, but I think it's good for us to imagine. And I shared this last year, this illustration. I think it's worth repeating today to try to consider this number. You know, if you started driving down in Key West on the tip of the state of Florida and you began driving north up from Key West, that number of 62 million babies aborted would match the current populations of these states combined. You'd have to drive through Florida and Georgia and South Carolina, and if you took all the present populations of those states and combined, that would be just a fraction of 62 million. You'd have to keep driving through our state, the state of North Carolina and the state of Virginia, drive through our nation's capital and the District of Columbia, and it's not until you've driven through the state of Maryland that the population of all those states and D.C. combined add up roughly to the number of estimated babies aborted in our country since Roe versus Wade. A an enormous number of lives taken. You know, it's easy to avoid topics that may make us feel uncomfortable, but I think it's good and right and timely for us to spend time in the Bible to consider what is said about the lives of the preborn. It's an issue that far too often can become invisible to us 
Even though if I told you that the largest abortion clinic in the state is within walking distance of our church, you may not know that. You may not know you drive past the road it's on. We were here before that abortion clinic was here. We've been here by God's grace since 1937. I think God has placed us here to be salt and light, not just to the nations, which we talk about and pray about so often, but also to this neighborhood. This is a real issue. It is an urgent issue, so it's good and right for us to think about this this morning. Now, this sermon is different from what I typically do. We uh, pretty much probably almost 52 times a year. Now it's kind of 51 times a year. Open up the Bible. We're going through a book of the Bible. This is a topical sermon. Do something a little different this morning. I'm going to be addressing this issue, and I certainly am not going to be able to say all that could be said on this topic in just one sermon. But we're going to spend time this morning looking at several different passages in the Bible to try and build a foundation for what God has said in His Word about the unborn. And then I want us to close our time thinking about how can our church respond in light of this. Now, I want to be clear, this is not a political sermon. There are important policy decisions to be made. I pray for men and women to be elected who would stand up for the unborn and stand against abortion. I pray for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. Uh, you heard me pray this morning, this year. La- last year, I stood up here and told you that about 15 years ago, I changed my mind and began to think more optimistically that I really did believe Roe versus Wade would be overturned in my lifetime. I wouldn't have guessed this time last year that we might see that happen this year. There are real live cases before the Supreme Court that they will be considering, and we should pray for that. It's good and right for us to pray. The topic is primarily, while public policy and law is important, then there are important policy steps that should be made. This topic is primarily a biblical issue. It's a moral issue. It's one the Bible is clear on, and we need to be clear on as a church. Let let me also be clear, this is not a heartless sermon. Christians are compassionate people. Jesus is compassionate. And those who have Jesus living inside of them, we should show and reflect that same compassion to others. So I imagine in speaking to a crowd this size, I don't take this lightly, there may be someone here who's had an abortion or been party to an abortion. I, I, I know the members of our church, you have shared testimonies with me. I'm so thankful for the ways you've shared with me, the way God has worked in your life and the forgiveness that you've come to know, that by God saving you through faith in Jesus Christ. I, I want everyone to know I'm not here to hammer anyone today. I am not here to beat you down. I am not here to condemn you today. We do want to be clear that abortion is sinful. It violates God's righteousness and His holy commands. It's evil. We also want to be clear it is not the unforgivable sin. And there are testimonies in this very church of people who've been forgiven of this very sin. As Christians, we have good news to preach. We have good news that God forgives anyone who would turn and trust in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've been party to an abortion, and you've repented of your sin, you can rejoice that you have a testimony. You have a testimony of God's grace and His forgiveness and setting you free from the guilt and shame of sin. And may you be reminded of God's grace in that testimony this morning. And finally, I want to be clear among the members of this church, this is not a controversial sermon. We are not split on this issue as Oakhurst Baptist Church. We've all agreed on this in our statement of faith. I'll read it a little bit later. We're all on the same page that abortion is clearly sinful and wrong. So I'm not preaching a controversial sermon to our members. I do understand if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, you're welcome to be here. I'm so glad you're here. I, I want you to know you may likely disagree with things I say this morning. And I want you to know that as a church, we do not hate people that disagree with us. We don't beat people down who disagree 
with us. We love you. We are glad that you're here this morning. And I would ask you to keep an open mind and listen to God's Word and listen to the testimony of this church, what God has said in His Word. Well, the Ten Commandments is where we're going to be looking this morning in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17. That's going to be the text we focus our time on this morning. And we're going to think particularly about the sixth commandment found in verse 13. This may be the most popular passage, well-known passage in the Old Testament, kind of ranking right up there with Psalm 23. And we would do well this morning to consider this, especially the sixth commandment. If you haven't already done so, take your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, that's a good way to stay engaged in the sermon. You can turn to page 61 in that pew Bible. And if you come this morning and you don't own a Bible, uh, we want to give that Bible to you. Take it home with you, read it, connect with someone here who could read the Bible with you. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17. I'm going to read through all of this passage as we begin this morning. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, the main idea that I want you to see in the Ten Commandments here in Exodus 20 this morning is this. Those who fear God must promote and protect life, including life in the womb. Those who fear God must promote and protect life, including life in the womb. I want us to consider this passage this morning, and I want us to think about two ways we must think about life. Two ways we must think about life. Uh, The first way is this. God's Word calls us to promote life. We're going to be looking at this Ten Commandments here. God's Word calls us to promote life. Now, the Ten Commandments are not merely rules given for how to live a a good life and be a good person. That's not what's going on here in Exodus 20. This is God's Word. It's His law given to display His holiness, given to display His character. The, The Ten Commandments, most simply, they display who God is, His nature. The commandments show us what God is like, and the commandments show us 
what He demands of us. The Ten Commandments were given by God to Moses, God Himself writing them on stone tablets to be delivered to the people of Israel, His his covenant people, a people that He had just redeemed out of Egypt, out of slavery, brought them out to be His people, a people that would worship Him and that would know Him. And so these commands call for God's people to look like Him. These commands call for God's people to love like He does. So you can view the Ten Commandments really in in two parts, or what's referred to as two tables. So the the first table, often referred to as the first four commandments, that's the first table of the Ten Commandments, those deal with our relationship with God. So when you hear, you know, have no other gods before me, uh, no taking the Lord's name in vain, no graven images, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, uh, that's talking about our relationship to God. And the second table, it's those last six commands, and they have to do with our relationship with others. So commandment five is kind of the bridge, kind of the others that are closest to you, mom and dad, honor your father and your mother. We get into murder and adultery and stealing and bearing false witness and coveting. Those all have to do with how we would relate to others. So you can view these two tables of the Ten Commandments simply as love God, love people. Think about those first four as vertical commandments, us loving God, and those second six, those last six horizontal commandments, how to love your neighbor, how to, how to love others. And one way to think about the Ten Commandments is that our love for God and devotion to Him in the first four commands will lead to us not breaking those last six. So those who walk in the fear of the Lord and a, a love for Him, a devotion to Him, well, then the overflow of that is going to be loving your neighbor. You know, even in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, we see that when the people of Israel, when they responded to the, the word of the Lord coming with lightning and thunder, they were afraid. And Moses pointed them there in verse 20 towards a, a fear of reverence before God. He said that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. Sim- simply put, fearing God leads to keeping His commandments. Fearing God leads to obeying Him. So with that context in mind, let's consider the sixth commandment. It's pretty plain in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. If you love God and you're devoted to Him, you will not commit murder. It's a short passage. It's plain. Not a lot of explanation right there in verse 13. It's a very clear sentence. In fact, it's only two words in the original language of, of Hebrew, like literal translation, not murder. It's two words, very simple and, and plain. And the Hebrew word for murder it does not refer to all killing. There's another Hebrew word for execution that's different than what we see in verse 13. There's a different Hebrew word used for killing in battle, killing in self-defense. The word murder here in verse 13 refers to unlawful killing, I mean not breaking God's law, because we know that there's lawful killing and abortion present in our land today. This is referring to unlawful killing, breaking the law of the holy God, the law maker, the truth giver, the God most high. It refers to intentional, unlawful taking of life. So simply put, the sixth commandment prohibits the taking of innocent human life. 
Now, the foundation of this commandment, we've been looking at a lot in Genesis. We've spent a lot of 2021 thinking about this. In Genesis 1:28, given at creation, we see that human beings are created in the image of God, that God blessed humanity in a way that's different from everything else that He created. Making man in his own image means that the human race, male and female, was granted a particular likeness to God. God putting his stamp on us as human beings in a way that stands out from the rest of creation. So this commandment in Exodus 20, 13, it wasn't a new commandment. They were kind of blown away by, wow, this is a new commandment. We've never heard this before. That that wasn't the case. In fact, we read judgment for murder back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which, which reads, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. There's a prohibition of murder theologically grounded in the image of God back in Genesis chapter 9. So to be human by definition is to bear the image of God. Every human life, including unborn human life, bears the image of God. Worthy to be treated with honor and dignity and respect. Human life is precious in God's sight to destroy human life is an attack on the image of God. Murder is a particularly heinous sin where one person made in the image of God deliberately and intentionally takes the life of another image bearer of God. We should be deeply troubled by this sin. It's far too present in our society. This morning we're going to think about it with abortion, but if you just turn on the, the, news, uh, the news channels, if you, if you do that now, you just look at Joe Bruno's tweets. But if you look at tweets, you're going to see pretty clearly how much murder is taking place in our city, in the neighborhoods around us. We should be deeply troubled and bothered by that. As Christians, we have a theological reason to be concerned. Now, the sixth commandment, it's important to understand, it's not satisfied merely by not taking someone's life. So if you think, well, I've never murdered anybody, I guess I'm good. Like, I'm better than other people in, in Charlotte or better than those who've committed this crime. I've never done that. I would, wouldn't think about doing that. I think I'm, I'm good. Well, this commandment built into it, it deals with inward realities as well. And Jesus helped us understand that. He wasn't preaching something new in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He was actually showing us how to properly understand the Mosaic Law and the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. Jesus taught on the Sixth Commandment in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And what He did when He taught about the Ten Commandments was pointed us towards looking inward, inside of our our hearts, to understand the seriousness of sin and the root of sin inside of us, to consider the attitudes of the heart that, if left unchecked, will produce murder. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He deepened the sixth commandment. He taught that the Sixth Commandment not only prohibits the act of murder, but also attitudes and intentions of the heart, like anger, which produce violence and murder. So if you're filled with unjust anger towards others, Jesus says you're guilty of violating the Sixth Commandment. God hates murder, and He hates the root of murder. 
It's also important to understand, as Christians, we read the Ten Commandments, and we understand that they point to Jesus, that all of the commandments reflect the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God's righteousness on display through the Ten Commandments, here's who God is, here's His character, here's His nature, and then Jesus came down to earth to show us who God is, fully God, fully man. Jesus is the only one to love God perfectly and love others completely. You and I can't keep ten commandments. We break them. Prayer of confession we had this morning that Chad Ledison was confessing, we've broken these ten commandments. We regularly break them, and for Christians, we will regularly confess of that sin and walk in forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly kept God's commandments. And then He laid His life down, and He, he died on the cross as a substitute, the only one qualified to be a substitute, to pay the penalty for our sins and our disobedience to God and to His Word. Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day, that all who would repent of their sin and believe in Him would receive new life coming from Jesus and His resurrection, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the God that we have sinned against, a heart that was cold to God and hard and did not want to hear God's Word and obey God's Word, exchange for a heart that loves God, that longs to walk in fellowship with Him, indeed because we've been united to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore our relationships horizontally are transformed. We care about our neighbors. We love our, our neighbors. We find ourselves sinning against our neighbors. We're convicted of that, and we want to walk in ways that honor God and are obedient to His Word. You see, this forgiveness of sins, it's extended to anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ this morning. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. God forgives those who have abortions. It's not the cardinal sin. God will forgive those doctors who have committed that terrible act of taking the lives of unborn babies. He'll forgive them if they turn to Him. We have good news to preach. Let's preach it. Let's proclaim it. Let's delight in Jesus, who He is, and what He's done. All who trust in Jesus also were filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. And the Holy Spirit of God empowers us to walk in obedience to God and to His Word, to care about the Ten Commandments, and to see the fruit of obedience in our lives. So the Holy Spirit in your life, if you're a Christian, that empowers you to keep the Sixth Commandment. What does that look like? Well, certainly don't murder, but there are positive implications of this commandment. Besides just, hey, don't do this, there are things we are called to do. Jesus unpacks that a little bit in Matthew 5, saying we're peacemakers, we, we love others. Rather than getting angry with someone and trying to assassinate their character or take their life, we seek to make peace. It's just what Christians do. God has made peace for us through Jesus Christ, His Son, and those who have Christ in us, we will make peace with others around us. Life is precious. It's given by God. How do we keep the sixth commandment? We promote life. We cherish life. We value human life. We seek to love God by loving our neighbor, loving their life. We look out amongst a crowd of people like Jesus did with compassion. We see first and foremost people need God. They need forgiveness that only comes through Jesus. And we care about all types of suffering, especially eternal suffering. 
We want them to know Jesus and be forgiven of their sins. They would live with God forever. And that also compels us to meet towards that, that momentary suffering, meaning suffering this side of heaven, this side of, of, of hell for some. That we would give ourselves in compassion and love people the way that Jesus did. He loved everyone He came into contact with. He loved them by speaking the truth to them. He loved them by caring for them. He loved them by showing concern for their needs and pointing people to His provision of knowing God. We should not love people more than we love God. I think that's one takeaway from the Ten Commandments. But we can't love God without loving people created in His image. In fact, our love for God is demonstrated in how it is that we love people and relate to them. So when it comes to abortion, Christians must love the expecting mother and the unborn baby. We love both. We don't have to make a choice. We, we love both. We care about both. We must love life inside the womb and life outside of the womb, supporting those who choose life, helping them through the challenges the real and difficult challenges that they face. But for those who fear the Lord and seek to honor Him, we must promote life. Let's consider a second way we must think about life. Secondly, God's Word calls us to protect life. If you go out and ask your friends and ask your neighbors, uh, is murder wrong? Imagine most people look at you strangely, like, is that a trick question? Why are you asking me? Of course, murder is wrong. Why are you asking that, that question to me? Well, why isn't there the same attitude about abortion and the taking of a preborn life, of a baby in the womb? Well, the debate around abortion, it's it shifted over the years. When I was growing up, what, what I heard a lot from, from those on the pro-abortion side was that, you know, well, this is a lifeless clump of cells. It's just tissue. It's not a life form. And and, and therefore, we're, we're not talking about life. The debate shifted over the years. I, I think you can no longer really say that with science and technology and uh, all the things we can see with 3D ultrasound and what we know about DNA and the formation. You, you really can't be intellectually honest and make that argument that this is just a lifeless clump of, of cells. So the debate has shifted, and today it's more about being framed in a women's health issue. And Dr. Raphael Warnock, a U.S. senator from Georgia, who also described himself Several times, a pro-choice pastor. So let me tell you, there's no such thing as a pro-choice pastor. There should not be. That is not permitted. That is not allowed. He said this yesterday. On the 49th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, I'm reminded women's health care is under attack like never before. We've got to uphold a woman's right to choose and stop chipping away at reproductive freedoms. Women's decisions about their bodies belong to them. So that, that's often what we hear. That's often that what is said. If you're a Christian and you speak up about abortion, you, you will get accused of not caring about women's health and their freedom. You will likely get accused of not being compassionate. Uh, also, I mean, the troops are being rallied right now saying, like, hey, women's rights are trying to be taken away. Anytime there are restrictions passed, you're going to see people who are fighting against those restrictions. Well, the call for Christians, we need to be clear. The call for Christians for us to love neighbors means we must love and care for both the woman and the unborn child. We don't have to choose. We're called to do good to everyone, to love everyone. And, and two people 
are in view, and really three, because you've got to consider the, the potential father and the, and the equation as well. But we understand for sure two people are in view in abortion. We care about the health of women as Christians, and we care about the health and the safety and the well-being of those little preborn babies in the womb. Now, we see clear testimony in the Bible that when it comes to abortion, so I'm not just telling you this as my opinion, the Bible tells us very clearly two lives are in view. You only have to flip to the next chapter in Exodus. Do that right now. 21, Exodus 21 tells us two lives are in view, the woman and what is in the womb. So the sixth commandment's general. The next chapter gets specific and starts looking at specific situations. So in verses 22 through 25 of Exodus 21, we read of a situation of a a pregnant woman, and she's around some men that are fighting, and she gets accidentally caught up in this fight, meaning she gets struck. That's the situation, the scenario being presented. And in God's Word, this is God speaking, God saying this, here's what is to happen. Here is who is being affected here. There's a, a baby in the womb that's injured, and God's Word considers both the pregnant woman and her unborn child to both be victims in that situation. Two lives affected. Look at Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What did God say came out of this pregnant woman when she was struck? Children, a child, a human life. In this passage, God Himself refers to what's in the womb as a life, a child. And the punishment given there in verse 23, you shall pay life for life. It's acknowledging that's a, a, a life. And life for life, simply put, it's just saying that the punishment should fit the crime. It's a serious crime. If that unborn baby has been harmed, that's a life. It's a serious crime because that unborn life is made in the image of God. This unborn child being killed was a serious matter. Keep in mind, this is addressing an unintentional killing. Extreme negligence, for sure, but unintentional. An extreme act of negligence, but unintentional. How much more serious is the intentional act of taking life in the womb? Well, clearly, what's in the womb is a life. God spoke to Moses, clearly pointing to the unborn, being a child in the womb, and he prescribed a law to protect that life. This is one passage of many that clearly demonstrates a concern from God to his people to protect life, including unborn life in the womb. Now, the consistent testimony of Scripture is what is in the womb is human life. Another place we see this, turn with me to Psalm 139. Pastor Tim read this earlier this morning. Psalm 139, you can turn to page 521 in your pew Bible. Psalm 139, page 521. I'm going to read starting there in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What's happening in the psalm is that David is meditating on the love of God and how well God knows him. He's marveling at God being intimately involved in creating him in his mother's womb. And David says, God formed my inward parts. God knitted me together in the womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. This is all language describing God forming a baby in the womb. That what's in the, in the womb is human life, created in the image of God. And this isn't true just of David. God formed and knit together every person who was ever born. Every person in this room, you're not a mistake. You were God's idea. He created you. He has a plan for you. He loves you. You exist because of God and His plan. You see, David is referring and looking back to this time in the womb, and he's saying something interesting in this passage. Notice that the personal possessive pronouns. He's not differentiating his life back in the womb and his life as a psalmist. In verse 13, he says, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame, verse 15, when I was being made. What's in the womb? David says it was me. It was my frame. It was my body parts there in the womb. God God knew me there. He he loved me there. He he formed me there. So there's a continuity even in the psalm where we see that the David who wrote the psalm and the David that was in the womb, same person. His life began way back in the womb. God knew him back then as an unborn child. We also see teaching in the New Testament that's consistent with the Old Testament, teaching that the unborn are people. So we read about John the Baptist and when he was in his mother's womb and Jesus in his mother's womb. It's clear what was there as a child. In Luke chapter 1 verse 15, I'll read this. Luke 1 15, the, the angel appeared and declared about John the Baptist, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And again, the Holy Spirit does not fill a clump of lifeless cells and tissue. The Holy Spirit fills people. John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb of of his mother. Luke 1.41, we read, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, look at what leaped in her womb. The baby leaped in her womb. And by the way, Luke describing what is in the womb as a baby, Luke is believed to have been a physician. He's saying what was in her womb was a baby. The Greek word for baby that Luke used, it's used throughout the New Testament for for baby or, or infant. It's the same word used for the little baby Jesus, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So simply put, the baby in the womb is no less of a baby than the babe that was in the manger. What that leads us to understand is that a mother's womb should be a place of refuge and safety. It should not be a place where a baby is in danger. It should not be a place where a mother puts her own baby in danger or someone else pressures her or tempts her to put her baby in danger. It should be a place of care and refuge and rest. 
Brothers and sisters, the biblical evidence is overwhelmingly clear that what's in the womb is human life created by God in His own image. And therefore, and I show you all this to conclude, abortion violates the sixth commandment. Abortion breaks God's commands. Every abortion ends a human life. Every abortion stops a heartbeat. It cannot be undone. We are not caring for women in difficult situations if we encourage them or stand by them to end the life of that baby. That can never be undone. And in that equation, politicians like Dr. Raphael Warnock claim to be concerned with women's health. As a Christian, as a Baptist pastor who is pro-life, I will not cede any ground to him that he cares more. He speaks on no higher moral ground. He mentions nothing of the pain that women will go through living the rest of their lives having to deal with killing their unborn child. He mentions nothing about scientific studies that demonstrate and show that to us. He shows no care or concern for that unborn child or for the mother. As Christians, we have, I think, a unique opportunity to speak to this. We have a way to speak with compassion and grace and to speak truthfully. And I think we got to start off being truthful. We need to be honest about this language. Abortion is not merely ending a pregnancy. It's not merely terminating a pregnancy. We have to conclude from Scripture, if we're going to have a clear conviction, abortion is murder. I don't say that to be provocative. I say that because we need to understand what is true in God's Word. The truth that unborn or the unborn are human beings bearing the image of God is not controversial among Christians. It's not controversial among the members of this church. I mentioned it's in the last article of our statement of faith. Everyone who joined this church signed this and said, I believe this. We believe that children bear the image of God from the moment of conception and are a blessing and an inheritance from the Lord. Now, what's the debate shifting over the years from referring to a, a fetus as merely being tissue and a a clump of lifeless cells, to now people speaking about abortion as a, a women's health and freedom issue, we must acknowledge, and I think we want to be clear and loud about this, we can and should love both the mother and the unborn baby. And what is best for the baby is also best for the mother. It is best for the mother that that unborn baby live. We can listen and we should listen with compassion to the difficulties that a woman faces in an unplanned pregnancy. I don't pretend to imagine all those difficulties, to know them all, or to be able to feel them all. I know they're there, and we can listen with compassion. We can be ready to support, but as Christians, we cannot support abortion. We cannot support taking the life of an innocent, human being, an unborn baby. If we are to love God, if we are to love our neighbor and care for them, we must help them choose life. We must protect our unborn neighbors. Well, I want us to close considering, well, well how should we promote and protect life? Because, again, we're not in disagreement over that in our church, that this is unborn life that should be promoted and protected. But maybe you're wondering, member of our church, well, how do I do this? I, I agree, amen. Like, how can I think about this and, and being more attached to this issue so it doesn't become invisible to me? I don't live as if this isn't happening. It's not a real issue. We're two postures I want to call you to. Number one, be watchful in prayer. Be watchful in prayer. And number two, be ready to act. 
two postures I think we can have. Be watchful in prayer and be ready to act. First, be watchful in prayer. We should pray for God to end abortion. Prayer is a weapon. We should use it. We should wield it often. You know, if God answered your prayers that you prayed recently about abortion, what would happen? If God answered your prayers that you prayed recently, maybe from this past week, how many parents would choose life? How many single mothers would be supported and helped? Let's commit to pray more about this issue. I was convicted of that this week. I want want to pray more. I feel passionate about it. Let's make it a priority in prayer. Let's give ourselves to praying more about this issue. Number two, let's be ready to act. We must act to save the lives of children in the womb and protect those outside of the womb. Uh, I I hear this levied against Christians a lot. I I would say it's it's not true that Christians only care about the preborn. If if you espouse a a pro-life position, you you might have it thrown back at you. Well, you're really pro-birth. You don't care. It's not true. Christians are to care about all life. Now, I am happy for us to be poked and prodded of how we can do more, how we can love more, how we can do a better job of loving and serving around us. But it's simply not true to say all we care about is birth and then we don't care about people after that. I look at this church and different members of our church are taking different actions. I see members of our church that are involved in all different ways, some informal and some formalized, some formally organized uh, to care for people in this community through the food pantry, some formally organized to tutor students at the elementary school down the street. All of us, I understand, are informally involved in relationships where we are working to help and to care and to love those around us. While I've said that I personally haven't been in this situation of, of being along somebody who needs to choose life, I have been involved in my extended family on several occasions. On several occasions in my extended family with relatives of mine who were considering abortion. I have been involved in my previous church with a member of my church who was wondering what they should do. And the call was to stand very plainly to help them to see they must choose life and to come alongside them and care for them and show compassion. Now, while different members of our church may take different actions, some of you may march for life. I've had the opportunity to do that on several occasions. I hope I'm able to do that again. Some of you give to pregnancy resource centers. Some of you serve in pregnancy resource centers. Uh, We have members caring for the community right now in different ways. We have many opportunities presently going on to act to protect life inside the womb and outside of the womb. I mentioned earlier also that public policy and law is important. While abortion is not fundamentally a political issue, it's first and foremost a, a moral issue, one that God's words clearly speaks to, as we've seen this morning. With this moral issue, laws matter. Lawmakers matter. Who's on the Supreme Court matters. I have pastor friends in the East Asia and other places who have no voice about laws. They have no voice about lawmakers. They have no opportunity to affect change. We live in the United States of America. We have a voice. We have a vote. We have opportunities to impact change. And while it is so clear that our hope is in Jesus, not in laws or lawmakers, where we can be good stewards of the democracy God's given us, we should be. We should think carefully about that. We're on the verge this year, I mentioned, of perhaps seeing Roe versus Wade overturned in 20. 22. If you've not read about that, you should read more about it. There are 
cases right now in the hopper from Texas and Mississippi that the Supreme Court will rule on, there is a very good chance they will overturn Roe versus Wade and kick that to the states to decide. It's an important issue that things are presently moving and happening with. I think in light of all of that, laws supporting life, we have to consider laws supporting life do not get written and passed without lawmakers who will stand for what is right, without judges who will sit on the bench and rule with justice and stand against wickedness, these cases will not be overturned. I certainly understand that voting involves considering different matters of conscience. And as Christians, our conscience must be shaped by God's Word, and our conscience must be consistent with God's Word. And as Christians, I think the issue of abortion should affect the way we think about elections. Well, I hope to see Roe versus Wade overturned soon, possibly this year, regardless of what happens with those court cases and laws, there are actions that members of this church have taken and, and can still take to protect life inside of the womb and outside of the womb. Some of you have adopted. Some of you are presently in the process. Some of you have fostered, are fostering right now. If there are ways we can better help you as a church, please let me know. Please let us know. Please let, let our, our deacons of member care know ways that we can better serve you and help you. That we want to support foster parents and adoption. And we want to support single parents. We should be ready to support and to help those who choose life. And I want to point our attention today specifically to our Baptist Children's Homes of North Carolina. Our church presently gives to these children's homes through giving to the North Carolina Baptist Convention. These children's homes are spread throughout the state of North Carolina. They do a tremendous work. I'm happy that our church supports them. I'd be happy to see us better support them. So Chris Salamanides is going to be down front here afterwards with a laptop where you can go and sign up and put your email address in, and we will send you more information about how you can learn about the work there. They do all sorts of things. You can give money towards beds for the children's homes. There's information to adopt and to foster. They have support and care for single mothers. That's thing that, things that North Carolina Baptists have been doing and are presently doing that I'd be delighted to see us be more involved in. And finally, being ready to act means we must take courage in the Lord. It takes far more courage to stand up for the unborn in the public square. As we pray, as we work to shine the light of Christ into darkness, let's be clear on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have good news to preach and share. We serve the one who paid for all sin by dying on the cross. We serve the one who rose from the dead on the third day. All who turn to him find forgiveness and new life. And let us seek to live our lives in ways that fear God and obey his commands. Let us live our lives in ways that bring glory and praise and that seek to spread that praise in our city, in the neighborhoods around us, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.